2: Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys.
0: Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations.
2: Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Howard Bloom. Howard is an award-winning author and journalist. He was twice nominated for the Pulitzer Prize during his work with the New York Times. And he's also written more than a dozen nonfiction books, winning an Edgar for his 2008 book, American Lightning. His latest is The Spy Who Knew Too Much. Again, nonfiction, an investigation of a missing CIA officer and a possible connection to a mole within the agency. Howard, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So today we're going to have Diet Coke. Keep our keep our wits about <laughs> Sounds it. Sounds
3: great. Yes. <laughs> I can use all the caffeine I can get. So I will I will get that started. <laughs> with a I appreciate nice... your decanting it for me. <laughs>
2: A <laughs> nice a nice careful pour.
3: Okay. One more. We're going with the old school cans here. Delicious. <laughs>
2: Cheers. Thanks for coming in. Thank Good to see you. you. So I've done my homework on you. I see you're originally a New Yorker and went to Horace Mann, which is just up the yes. road from here, one of the Hill Schools.
3: Yes, up in Riverdale it's where I grew up, uh, right around there. That is a beautiful area. Yeah, and it's, it's a, a school I feel a great attachment to. That I owe them a lot. Yeah, I mean, th- that is one of the premier schools in New York City. I know we
2: have young kids, and so we're looking around, and the Hill School is one of these elite, wonderful I mean, schools. If
3: one wants to be a writer, that is a place to go. I When I first thought about becoming a writer, you would have to go into chapel in the mornings and you would pass a two large bookcases, and these bookcases were filled with books by Horace Mann alumni authors. And you'd look at them and you think, well, if they could do it, maybe I could aspire to do that someday. Mm-hmm. But that's when I first started thinking about that and the way each morning to chapel. Uh, I don't know if they still have chapels these days.
2: That is motivating to see it being done. That expression, if you see it, you can be it. And It is nice to have that kind of inspiration around you daily. So from there, of course, you do very well. You go off to Stanford uh, for both undergrad and also a master's in government studies. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Were the studies there, were you thinking that you might actually go work on Capitol Hill and directly in politics, or were you think that was always a path to journalism?
3: I was focused on becoming a professor. I had a Ford Foundation Fellowship to study politics uh, at Stanford. I'd also gone to the London School of Economics and studied international political theory, and I was thought I was going to be a teacher. I was as a, a teaching assistant at Stanford for a while to Professor Gabriel Amon. And then I started sending pieces into the Village Voice, uh, and they started running them. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. And I remember finally, after... Midway towards my doctorate, I, going out one September, picked up my fellowship check and then got on the plane the next day and took a uh, job at the Village Voice writing for them. That seemed to be more interesting at the time. Back home in New York. Yes. Yeah. And and having a byline and being 20-something and running around the city with a press card. It was, you know, great fun. And, and The Voice was a sort of publication where you were only limited by your ambitions, You could write about anything you wanted to. It was sort of a precursor in its way, I feel, to the Internet, where you could share your feelings, your thoughts, and at the same time cover news. And in addition to that sort of freewheeling spirit, there was a a city editor there, Mary Peratt Nichols, and she had real ties into the New York establishment. So you got to know how the city worked, and uh, it allowed me eventually to make my way to The Times. Did you have a particular beat at that time, or
2: you know, were you doing a lot of politics, or is it more New York centric? At, at, at,
3: at the Village Voice, your beat was "What's on your mind this week." That's great. No it, it was it was totally freewheeling. It wasn't. Yeah. Uh, there were no, no rules, no bounds. Uh, they had some editors. I mean, Dan Wolf, who was the editor in chief of the Voice, and I became very close. My youngest daughter is is named after him, Danny Bloom, who's now a reporter at the New York Times. You can see her byline. It's in the uh, genes, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. A lot of the work you've done in your books, uh,
2: you cover these riveting intelligence operations, a lot of hidden history-type stories as well, and many of them focus on World War II, though my first read of yours was Dark Invasion, which is about World War I espionage and and some of the German work you know, sabotage and espionage in America. So that I think called in your book, the first terror cells domestic to the U S and you've also done like present day stuff. I mean, you're, you're doing a ton of work on the Idaho murders with, with
3: Koberger. It's fun to be eclectic. I mean, one of the great, since as you pointed out, I went to a a lot of colleges. I spent a lot (laughs) of years in graduate school. I even went back a year ago to Oxford for the summer to study Russian politics. And I spent the summer at St. Anthony's college, uh, And it's fun learning things. I enjoy learning things. And one of the great things about being a writer is you get paid to learn things. So if you can take a new subject for each book, it's like taking a new course. You learn about it. You digest it. You try to figure out a way to tell the story. And then you can sit down for a couple of years and try to write it. Well, that is a great way of
2: life. I think not everybody has that gift of never stop learning and a, and a mentality for that. Some people sort of
3: feel they, they uh, know there, what they need to know. If you there know? weren't bills, it would be a perfect life.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's a good jumping off into process because I, I had a few questions there because you you do have such a range of things that you do, you know, not only just in chronology, but in, in sort of category area. How do you peruse this universe of ideas and then select the one that you're going to take on as the next project?
3: I read a lot and have lots of ideas. The problem is, can these ideas be translated into a book? Uh, if you're a working writer, you have to pick a topic that you can eventually realize. And I set out, for example, in Dark Invasion, I tell nonfiction narratives. That means they're character-driven But at the same time, I adhere to standards that I learned at the New York Times. Everything is true, all the characters, the dates, nothing's invented. Mm -hmm. And to be able to accomplish that, you need the relevant source materials. For example, the people involved will need to have written perhaps their memoirs or their collection of letters or their contemporaneous newspaper articles. And in Dark Invasion, I had... Several of the people involved had written memoirs, mm-hmm. uh, both the good guys and the bad guys. One of the terrorists had written a fascinating memoir. Uh, and there were government documents and even trial documents. So I had the facts to then be able to tell a what I hope is a page-turning narrative. Totally. It's, it's least, written
2: novelistically, but anything in quotes
3: is sourced and it was actually said or written. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So so that that's sort of the process. I find a topic that interests me yeah. and, and then I just have to do the research to see if there's enough foundational material that one can write a true story that also has a narrative drive, a character-driven story.
2: You have a talent for doing a range of research because your topics r- require that. So, for example, with Dark Invasion or World War 1 era book, that's all archival Research, but what you're doing with the Idaho murders is mainly primary research. You're interviewing people, and and then you're you know finding documents and you know investigative work as well. But you know it's happening right now.
3: What I think to me is most compelling about the Idaho murders is that I'm able to tell a story. I mean, I'm looking at all these people involved, the families, the suspects, his family as characters in a novel mm-hmm. I'm putting together. For example. I have a piece coming out uh, this week. I've been writing for Graydon Carter's airmail. And I should say it was Graydon who got me involved in the Idaho story originally. He reached out to me on a Thanksgiving. I guess it was last Thanksgiving, and the murders had just occurred. And he said, would you want to write about this and get on a plane? And I remember Thanksgiving, I had a house full of people. And I thought, well, it would be nice to get to Idaho (laughs) after this. So I got on a plane and... I was able to talk to people in the early days and make some inroads before it became the story became overwhelmed. And now in this week's issue, I'm telling a story about father of one of the victims and how he's trying to deal with this by becoming a detective on his own personal quest to get answers. And along the way, he's uncovered some fascinating things that haven't been revealed yet and hopefully will be revealed in airmail this weekend. Yeah, well,
2: it's interesting. It's like you're writing a novel, but without the outline. You don't know what's coming next. You've right. got uh, I'm, no I'm, plan I'm, ahead yet. I,
3: really. I, I sort of, you know, uh, Dickens, as Boz, used to write in mm-hmm. episodes uh, when he was writing his books. And I sort of, of course, I'm aggrandizing myself greatly. I don't mean to compare myself to Dickens, though I inspire to use the sort of details that, that mm-hmm. he uses. There's always a character who's ancillary to the action when you read dickens uh, that's fully drawn you can just be pass him in a paragraph and yet dickens has this amazing ability to make it feel like he's essential to the story and and that you're seeing him and i try to even make my ancillary characters have that sort of heft Uh, unfortunately i don't have dickens genius
2: (laughs) well you're 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 not far behind if, <laughs> if at all it. but i am hearing uh, Graydon carter's air mile uh, media platform really is terrific we had we had jay fielden on recently and i know he's done some writing for it yeah. as well are, are we, people had to get a quick sample for, for i know it's a subscription service. Can people sample your stuff free there, or do they need the subscription to AirMail for I
3: think they need a uh, subscription, but if you don't tell Graydon, and if he's not listening to this, (laughs) I think if you go to my Facebook page, I think they're they're linked to that. Okay. Uh, And I think they might be able to open it up there.
2: All right, uh, Howard Bloom on Facebook. Uh, uh, <laughs> now your, your coverage of the, uh, you're leading the coverage on on the Coburger Idaho murders. I mean, you're, there was just a 48 hours yeah. piece that you've done, and I mean, you're kind of on the pointy end of all that.
3: Yeah, it, it's it's been fun. I mean, be, be able to move into something new. As I said, I like learning new things. So mm-hmm. instead of writing about history, now I'm going around the way I started. Thirty years ago, uh, with a trench coat and a notebook in yeah, my hand, yeah. and, and knocking on doors, and it, and it's it's fun, it's it's an adventure. Uh, so,
2: in terms of the research, primary, secondary, I'm wondering which you prefer. I, I've done a bit of research for some books, and and mine all takes place pre World War One, which one archivist was describing as the golden age of letters. You know, everyone wrote everything down. Right. Then there was all this incredible correspondence where people put real thought into it in a way that, you know, now we're sort of snapping off text messages and things like that with emojis. It's like, but there's almost no documentation of our era in the way there was 150 years ago. Do you you prefer
3: the secondary archival stuff, or do you prefer the trench coat and the pad? It's not a question of preference. It's just really exciting when you uncover something Mm. and when you can find a letter someone has written or even a memoir that's been buried, you know, 100 years ago And there are facts in there. Uh, When you can find, again, in Dark Invasion, a memoir uh, written by uh, a German count who was leading this terrorist cell. I mean, this story, Dark Invasion, takes place in 1915, and what happens is a terrorist cell comes to America, they put a bomb in the U.S. Capitol building, and, and it goes off, they attempt to assassinate the nation's richest man, J.P. Morgan. And they also attack America with anthrax uh, in Mm -hmm. three different cities and are planning to attack the New York City subway system. And the U.S. government, in response, takes a New York City police detective, has him handpick a team as if they were the untouchables, and sends him out to catch these guys with no prior training. And, and this is all true. And and once I um, you know, got my hands on that story, that was pretty exciting. And how do you get a story like that? I was up at the CIA's headquarters in Langley talking a, about another book uh, of mine. And I remember I was talking to the CIA historian mm-hmm. and I very pompously said, you know what, I'm trying to tell a true story. And he starts, you know, laughing hysterically. And I thought, what did I do? He said, You're never going to get the true story. There's always one more file out there in the archives, the CIA archives. I'll never be able to get it. You'll never be able to get it. And so based on on, on hearing that we became friends, and then he mentioned, well, this story is coming up in the CIA's Annal of Intelligence, this the basic background of Dark Invasion, which the CIA called the first attack on the homeland and the basis for the homeland security apparatus that exists today, this uh, little team of five detectives out of New York. And I thought, well, could I do something about that? So once I began researching, then I saw the memoirs, the articles, the letters, mm-hmm. etc., and I could put the pieces together into a narrative that was true. So do you think, is your
2: sense that there are files in the CIA? You know, some things get to the 50-year rule or the 30-year rule or whatever it is when things can be released. Some things never get released.
3: I definitely believe there are things that we'll never know. I definitely believe there, are people in the CIA don't know. I mean, there. I think, yes, secrets are, are are buried. I mean, not even the Kennedy assassination. Do they, do they burn everything? The is, file and, everything and it, has been uh, released. De- well, yeah. Some didn't they just delay it again? Yes. Say, yeah. I, I have a, a, another book uh, called Night of the Assassins. Again, a true story. It's about the Tehran Conference. FDR Churchill and Stalin decide to meet together for the first time in World War II uh, in Tehran, of all places, because that's as far as Stalin will leave. At the same time, the Nazis hear about this, and they send a team of commandos in to assassinate them. And what happens, it's a sort of cat-and-mouse suspense thriller, but again, all true, between FDR's Secret Service, the head of his Secret Service detail, Mike Riley and the Germans, and it builds to a, a, a really amazing conclusion. And again, it's all true, but the files on that have been buried in this country, but they have come out in Russia, uh, and the Russians released them because they they, they think they look pretty well in, in this story. Uh, why have they been buried in this country? FDR first comes back from Tehran. He has a press conference in the White House and there's a recording of this it's in the FD, uh, FDR library mm-hmm. up in High Park New York and anyone can hear it and uh, re- he starts telling the reporters uh, well we had a bit of a problem in Tehran and then he starts laughing and it would have been a pretty good haul if they got all three of us and then the reporters laugh too but let- then he says but let me tell you about my meeting with Shanghai Shek," and they just let just it pass blaze over it. yeah and yeah. uh, so when you're, are you like
2: going down? I'm, I'm picturing sort of the uh, the Indiana Jones when the Ark of the Covenant goes into the warehouse. I mean, are you going into dark corners and pulling files out of dusty boxes, or is it more stuff that you're finding that is scanned and you can keyword search it, or how, how are you coming uh, I, across I'm these? I'm doing things? a
3: little bit of both. I mean, yeah. again, in the FDR Library, when I was putting together uh, Night of the Assassins, they had Mike Riley's files where he's actually writing out the order of the cars and his own handwriting, drawing little uh, stick figures of where the agents will go next to various cars and mm-hmm. the menu for the night when the assassination was was planned by the Nazis to take place. So that that was and to hold those in your hands was pretty exciting. Yeah. A lot of it is some government documents. But it's always a mix in Idaho telling that story where there's a gag order, uh that is the judge is not allowing the principals to speak. It's it's a bit harder to get to the bottom of things. And yet, (laughs) there's been a grand jury, and once evidence is presented to a grand jury, well, people have seen things, and it's in the nature of people to talk. So I think I make some revelations Mm -hmm. in in this week's airmail. Oh, all right. Well, there's a good tease. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back.
2: Some geeky process questions, though, in terms of how you keep track of all this stuff. I mean, I can only imagine Dark Invasion is a quick read, but there's a lot of great info in there. So are you surrounded by stacks of index cards with pieces of information that trace it back to each source or using software to keep track of it? Or how do you do do it?
3: I work in a room uh, that's sort of glassed in over a pond on an old property, colonial property in Connecticut, and I have the, the the glass sort of walls are filled with taped cards, <laughs> taped memos, M- my lamp has pages stuck on that too, and then I outline usually every th- couple of pages before I write them, and then I never stick to the outline, but at least I have a map uh, that I hope to follow, because if I didn't have that map, it would just be too daunting. Mm-hmm. How about coffee, bourbon? Counts, what, what's the sort of routine? A, a great deal of coffee. I start I start drinking, uh, you know, I usually get up at 6 and try to get to my desk at 7, and I'm uh, filled with coffee. The cups of coffee keep coming all day. Uh, that's in Connecticut. I have a, another place in, in East Hampton where I've been writing, for example, this most recent Idaho, uh, and I work out of a pool house. Uh, and uh, the pool house is it's it's cold it's getting cold there this fall it's not heated very well so i use the coffee there too to keep
2: warm so i guess the sticky pads or taped pieces of paper and things like that are probably handwritten but when you're drafting in are you writing the first draft by hand or are you keyboard it in
3: i keyboard everything i think the fact the invention of the computer has even as poorly as I understand computers, has allowed me to write many more books. I was working at the New York Times uh, the first month when they brought in, when they changed from typewriters to computers. And I remember people in the newsroom were saying, this is ridiculous. This will, doesn't make any sense. And now the idea of not any doing anything on yeah. computers is, is just yeah. absurd. Yeah. How about early readers of your work? I. I'm such an egotist uh, that I don't like to have, have early readers. I figure they'll all have something to say, and it'll all probably be very wise. Uh, I read maybe a, a paragraph or two to Ivana Valol. Is that your... We live uh, together, okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, how about early... And inf- she's a writer, so uh, she knows better than to criticize me too much. She just will make a face... <laughs> you, you right. You, you at least know she approves or disapproves. Right. Um, how about
2: your early influences, particularly at the Village Voice in that era? Who, who were some of the writers you aspired to be or that you knew? Well, and, when admired? I was going
3: to college and then at the Village Voice, you know, everyone wanted to be Norman Mailer. Uh, Gay Talese uh, was a real influence. Philip Roth uh, in those days, and then at the mm-hmm. Voice itself, there were so many talents. Ron Rosenbaum is a genius. He just had a, a book come out. Uh, he does very quirky, but very insightful, uh, new journalism writing. I, I think he's terrific. Lucian Truska was great. All these people were uh, big influences on me. It was it was a community of young writers with <laughs> very large ambitions, yeah. and, and so we sometimes graded on each other. But it was it was fun being around them. That was. Very much a part of my education, that and Horace Man. Yeah, yeah. Um, One, one quick question on airmail. It seems
2: like that is working. I mean, airmail. There's Substack. There's sort of a new way for you know a writer like you to get a a voice out there and create a big platform. Is that is a Substack thing in your future too, or what what do you think of airmail and that sort of Uh, this new media way of
3: journalism? I was (laughs) didn't have much faith in airmail. I said, why is Graydon doing this? And I was proved 100% wrong. It's it's a big success. Mm-hmm. Graydon is clearly much wiser, more prescient than I am. Uh, he's been able to intuitively come up with a formula which mixes investigations to also articles that have the frisson uh, of what people are, are thinking about. Uh, mm-hmm. And... He's been able to replicate that without sort of the glitter and gloss of Vanity Fair. And he's done it on a platform, which I can't believe how many people read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to cite one example, my Idaho articles on have been put on TikTok and Instagram, and they had 504 million, million views. 504 million. 504 I mean, million? Yeah. To me, that's... unbelievable Uh, and this is all coming out uh, out of airmail and and Mm -hmm. Graydon's vision so as I said I'm a dinosaur I sit there you know my little desk in Connecticut or East Hampton and and write these things and he's able to get them to a large audience where they've been picked up on a variety of network shows I've been on uh, 48 hours uh, ABC's 2020 it's been sort of fun covering a story like this and I feel like I'm part of the story now, uh, because the story is building. no one knows how, how it's going to end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm going to do a book on it for Harper Collins, a traditional book, and there's been a, a movie sale that'll be based on my book, though so how it's going to be based on a book that's not written remains to be, <laughs> so far not written, remains to be seen, uh, but I look forward to finding out.
2: I want to follow up on that with your next projects and what's coming up for you, but just as a as a step back for any listeners who don't know who Graydon Carter is, he's the legendary editor for many years, probably 20-some years at Vanity Fair, hosted, of course, the Vanity Fair Oscars party and things like that, left Vanity Fair and has reinvented uh, media in some ways with his new product, Airmail, which is uh, a terrific... And think... How would you summarize Airmail in
3: a, in a couple I... of sentences? It, it is a internet magazine in some ways, mm-hmm. but i also be derelict if I didn't point out. Alexandra Stanley, who used to be at the New York Times, is his co-editor. And one of Graydon's sons, Ash Carter, is the sort of managing editor, does a lot of line editing. And he's a wonderfully perceptive editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's just terrific, Ash Carter. That's great. So on to your next
2: projects. There's going to be a film, the Idaho murderer, Koberger is the suspect, I, I guess we refer to him as now. Uh, yeah. That, that's already got a movie deal in the works. Uh,
3: yes. Uh, there's, uh, there's certainly going to be a deal. <laughs> Whether or not it'll be a film, uh, we will see, but the, the, the deal's been made as studio. It could be any. It could be a documentary
2: series. No, it, it, or, it's,
3: it's it's going to be a uh, either a feature or or a limited cable series. It's been bought by a studio. Wow! And, and will you so, do some
2: of the writing for this, or sort of producing uh, oversight?
3: Well, that's something to be. Dis- we couldn't discuss the writer because this, the writer strike was just settled. So now we can have serious talks, mm-hmm. uh, and we can see if I can sort of elbow my way in. <laughs> uh, I, I go from. From here to a a Zoom call in in a couple of hours with the director, uh, now that we can all talk on these things, on another one of my books, The Brigade, is being made Mm -hmm. into a movie, and Rod Lurie is directing that and writing it, uh, Mm -hmm. and that's being made in a series for Lionsgate you what mentioned when you arrive,
2: you've got a few balls in the air, and I know when we were scheduling this, you were coming back or going to Paris, I think, or France somewhere. So you got a few things going on. Yeah,
3: I've been traveling a, a bit this summer. As I, I was in Ireland for a while, and then I go to London a bit. So it's it's mm-hmm. it's busy and fun, and uh, but I will say, the past week. When I was trying to, because I'm doing so many things, get this airmail piece done in Idaho, and Mm -hmm. I know I'm sitting on a good story. I know I have information that no one else has. With regard to Idaho. Yes, and no one has been printed. So, And I also have other things to do. So I'm getting up at, set the alarm for 3.30 in the morning, and I'm trying to get everything done, you know, by... Four that afternoon, between three thirty in the morning and four in the afternoon, so I can handle the other stuff too. And I'm doing this for like five, six days straight, juggling it all. Yeah. Uh, and to be able to do this, I'm a, I'm a hundred years old. I've been doing this forever. Uh, it's still fun. I'm, I'm 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 so I feel so blessed that I can try to tackle uh, these sort of projects and, and still be excited by what I do. And, and it's, it's also gratifying that people. Want to read it and it's it sure as nice that they want to pay for it too. <laughs> well, that, that is a, an amazing
2: feeling when you uncover a, a piece of information. It's really like discovering pirate treasure. Can you characterize the nature of what you have found out on Idaho? Did it come from a, an interview or, or some
3: documents that you found? It, no documents, unfortunately. All the police documents are sealed up, but I've spoken to people who have knowledge. Of the grand jury, and, and there are some interesting revelations that have come out from the grand jury, and what the two surviving roommates may or may not know. Mm.
2: How exciting for you! I mean, you you are leading the coverage of it. We're right in the middle of it. Uh, inc- incredible! So you're, you're and probably here spending I'm sitting some-
3: in the middle of it, having a diet coke. <laughs> <laughs> you're undedicated. How nice. <laughs>
2: All right, so on to... Well, you know what? This One last thought on that. That is something that AI cannot do. You know, a number of writers are feeling threatened by AI. You should not be feeling threatened one bit. <laughs> I feel threatened
3: by everything.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, AI won't be leading the coverage on Koberger, that's for sure. Uh, so on to the lightning round. Your favorite book
3: as a kid. Moby Dick. Uh, going back to Horace Mann, I think, I think we spent, during junior year... Uh, which we called Fifth Form because we were pretentious, uh, the entire year on Moby Dick. And it sounded, you know, boring as heck, but you could see the architecture of a novel. You could mm-hmm. see w- what a novelist tries to aspire to and how large a canvas it could be. And to discover that was like discovering a whole new country. So th- that to me was <laughs> one of the key years of my life. In my education. That's great. Book or books you're reading now? I just finished a book called The Glass Room by Simon Maurer. Uh, And it's a novel, historical novel, that starts in pre-World War II and goes up to the 1990s. uh, And it's about relationships and also architecture, a little bit about philosophy. And I began it without without much interest because I thought the plotting was a bit contrived. And then, as I kept on reading, I couldn't put it down. I mean, he does create a world of characters and ideas that is exciting. He's a wonderful writer, and I'm, you know, (laughs) once I finish the fact-checking in Idaho, that's my project for this weekend to get another book, go on Amazon and get another book by Simon Maurer. Great.
2: Uh, I will check that one out. And I, I had not, I don't know that writer, so I'll have to. It, it
3: was shortlisted for the booker.
2: The most capable national in- intelligence apparatus
3: of the World War II period. I'd say, without a doubt, the KGB, because what they did is they first infiltrated the British intelligence service here in this country. And then the leaders of the British intelligence service who were working for them were taken by the CIA to help form. The CIA. So the CIA was, in fact, <laughs> came into life with the guidance of the KGB, That's or amazing. the NKVD, as it was called back then. It was some Gladwell book
2: that was talking about how you can tell when someone's lying or something like that. And it talked about, I, I don't know if you read this one, but the KGB had basically infiltrated the CIA to such an extent that they really, as you say, they were they're were in very high positions as these sleeper agents, very high within the CIA, yeah, and nobody I could mean, sort of suss them out.
3: When the U.S. government was founding the CIA, they met with the British, and the British liaison who was telling them how to form this intelligence operation was working for the Russians all mm-hmm. along.
2: All right, same question, most capable national intelligence apparatus, but of today.
3: Probably the CIA, but... it, it, it you know that's the sort of question that is just based on your prejudice because who knows the whole story? Mm. Maybe Cy Hirsch, but I I, I don't. I, that would be presumptuous for me to answer. Okay, best espionage movie ever made. Third Man, if you consider that an espionage with with or- Orson Welles and that great soundtrack. Mm. And if you ask which is the best espionage series, I think The Bureau. I, I was a big fan of the French. Exactly. that French. One. Yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, that was that was wonderful. Yeah, I'm. A,
2: I actually somehow I got sidetracked on that. I had started it with my wife, but I'll I'll go back to it. Last question for Howard Bloom. One piece of advice for the listeners:
3: Do what you want to do. That's what I tell my kids. Not that they listen, but I don't let anyone tell you what you should be writing about. But follow your instincts, and if you believe there's a story there, I bet you'll find it. That's great.
2: Howard, thank you so much for coming in. That was great. Thank you for having me. Good to talk with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you.